Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Banana Bag Podcast. A banana bag is another name for an IV medication full of nutrients and vitamins. It's given in the hospital to kind of be a super boost for your body. In that same way, we want this podcast to be a super boost for you, empowering both healthcare professionals and patients, but also anyone interested in learning more about our healthcare system. Today, I'm speaking with Christine. She's been a maternity nurse for over nine years, and she mostly works in postpartum. Postpartum is where you stay in the hospital after you have a baby. What I really enjoyed about this conversation is that she really dives deep into the joys and difficulties of being a postpartum nurse as well as being a postpartum patient. She also talks about a lot of things that have good intentions but can sometimes be miscommunicated by either the nurse or the patient. She also talks about what it's like to have a baby during COVID, and she gives some tips for those moms, which is great to hear because it's such an unknown. Follow us on social media at The Banana Bag Podcast or visit our website for more information, including ways to support us, thebananabagpodcast.com. Also, don't forget to share with your friends if you think they might be interested in hearing it. All right, here's the episode. Hi, Christine. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi. Can you kind of give me an idea of what type of floor you work on and your role on that yes. floor? Yes. So right now I'm currently working in maternity, also known as postpartum. So it's basically the nurses who take care of the mom and the baby after delivery. I'm a staff nurse, but I do have other roles. Awesome. Okay. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about a day in the life of a maternity nurse. So go into whatever <laughs> detail you want to, but yeah, can you kind of give me a day in your life? Sure. Basically, when we come in, we clock in and it starts off with us giving what's called an SBAR report. I find out who the night shift nurse was who was taking care of the patient that I'm going to take care of. And we go into the room, we introduce ourselves, give report in, in front of the patient so that they can put in any input if they need to during the report. Mm, that's a good idea. Um, yeah. And then also on this floor, since we have two patients, which is the mom and the baby, we always need to match the ID bands once a shift. So the ID bands are mom has one and baby has one. And it has these like digital numbers on it, digital print. And then we would read those numbers out loud and just make sure it matches. So it's the right baby in the room. And then after we do the introduction in the report, what I would need to do is go open up my patient's charts on the computer. I would check my orders to figure out what's the plan of care for the day for my patient. After that, I would have to do my initial assessment, which is where I check the mom mm -hmm. head to toe. Uh, the two things that are probably more different on the mom and baby floor for our assessment compared to like an adult floor or a pediatric floor is that we're concerned about breastfeeding. So we check the mom's breasts because if there's something going on with breastfeeding, sometimes these mothers can have sore nipples. They might even have some blisters. So we do assess that. Also, the second thing that's different is what's called a fundus. So fundus is the round top part of a mom's uterus. So we feel for that bum to make sure that it's nice and firm because if a uterus is what's called boggy, soft, that's like a risk for the patient to bleed out. Mm. So that's something else that's like different. Now going on with babies, we do do a head to toe as well just to make sure we know how the baby looks and if there's any changes, we'll know the difference from before and after. If the baby has a dirty diaper when we do our assessment, normally I would help that moment since I'm already checking the baby. I would help the parents out by 
changing the diaper. If it's the first diaper change, I would have mom and dad or whoever the support person is be involved. Mm. Tell them exactly what I'm doing as I'm doing it, like wetting the wipes with warm water and then how they clean, how they put the diaper on. That way they're kind of watching it. And then for the next time that the baby has a dirty diaper, I would want them to practice Mm. hands on while I'm there with them. So in case they need assistance, they're not scared to like mess up in their words. Oh, another thing that's different. If we do have a mom who had a C-section, we would check out their incision site. Oh, okay. We just want to make sure that that's intact. Also checking for edema. So if some of these moms do get swollen in the extremities, usually it's on their legs. Well, not on their legs, mostly on their feet. Since they've been getting a lot of IV fluids in the beginning, and they've been resting for a while, especially these C-section moms. They're supposed to be in bed rest for like 12 hours mm. um, after the surgery. They can sometimes pull liquid in their feet. So what we tell them to do is like elevate their feet on top of pillows and just start walking around too. Okay. Um, so the C-section moms are a little bit more, they have a lot more going on with them mm-hmm. compared to the vaginal delivery moms. And of course, you've probably heard like nurses are always trying to chart, finish their charting. You have a separate separate chart for the baby and a separate chart for the mom, right? We do. So it's basically if you have a total of four couplet cares, you're doing eight chartings like like for eight. Wow, that's a lot. It is. So it's it's different. That's why like so I hope people don't think that the charting is only like one solid charting. It's actually two different patients per room. And do you usually have four patients? For the most part, you end up getting four patients because you admit a new um, couplet. Um, mom and baby. There are times I do want to put out there is that it's not always both mom and baby coming up. There's times where the baby, if at delivery, the baby needs to be transferred Mm. from labor and delivery to a higher level of care. It would be called the NICU, which is like NICU. Then you would just have the mom coming up without the baby. Things could be what's called a chorioamnionitis. That's some moms that might have like a fever during their delivery. So what they would do is they have the baby go to the NICU for like observation to make sure there's no signs of like an infection on the baby. And then we would just take care of the moms. If a mom was a C-section and she did have that fever and they label it as chorio um, amnionitis, then that mom usually gets antibiotics um, via IV for, I want to say, at least 24 hours after delivery. It's that if the mom has any fever at all during the labor, then you do the antibiotics? Yes. Yeah. For the most part, it's only been for the C-section moms, I believe, because they have like a higher risk since they're getting uh, cut open. For the vaginal delivery moms, I very rare. They don't continue antibiotics after delivery for those moms. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So the difference for these moms that are separated from their babies, what we do for them like to support them is that we give them a electric breast pump. We initiate that like as soon as possible and we're baby friendly at our hospital. So we do everything we can to provide um, support for breastfeeding for these moms. So one thing is that the electric breast pump, we set it up, we teach them how to use it, it should be started within the first six hours um, after delivery. And um, certain things that moms can do to prepare is massage their breasts, what's called hand express, like take some of that colostrum out first to see it coming out. Mm. Colostrum is basically the milk that mom has been making during pregnancy. 
So it's going to look thick. It's going to look like honey, like the thickness of it, because it's been sitting there during the pregnancy, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's not liquid milk coming out yet. <laughs> that, that some people might expect. Can you feed that to your baby or do you only feed them the fresher milk? Good question. So colostrum is actually the best thing to give to the babies. It's called like the golden milk, the gold milk, because it's so special. Since it's been created during pregnancy, it has all the immunity for the baby, antibodies, that way that mom can give that to baby safely. Hmm. When they go to their prenatal care, they're encouraged to get the Tdap vaccine because of the pertussis part. We don't want babies catching the whooping cough because it's very bad for them. And also, if it's flu season, they ask them to get the flu shot so that those immunities will go into the breast milk. And that's how the babies get it. Mm, And that's why they encourage you to take the flu shot while you're pregnant, right? Because then you could pass that to your baby. Exactly. Yes. Like we would still offer it after they deliver because it's just, you know, it's good to protect yourself. That way you don't get sick and give anything to your baby. But the best time would be during pregnancy. Mm. Or uh, I think... Some moms might be nervous about getting the vaccine while they're pregnant, but to know that it will actually help their baby, that that's a good thing to keep in mind. True. Exactly. Yeah. And um, going back to these NICU moms, they are allowed to, to visit their baby depending on the, according to the policy from the NICU, it depends. Like, let's say going back to that example of the mom that has chorioamnionitis. So their policy would be that the mom should be afebrile, which means you she shouldn't have a fever for at least 24 hours from that fever that she had. Mm. After that 24-hour mark, like let's say it's 8 a.m. that she got the fever. So it would be the next day at 8 a.m. After that, she's allowed to visit her baby. So is there anything they can do to prevent this fever? Yeah, so that one wouldn't be something that I would know more details about. Um, since I'm more of like, yeah, the postpartum care. But that's a really good question to ask a, a labor and delivery nurse for sure. But they are allowed to visit their babies. Like I hope people don't think that they're not allowed to at all, mm. you know, since they're on a different like floor unit. I guess we'll go over more into like what our pandemic is right now and how that affects it. But previous, it's it's mom and dad because it's like a security purpose, like the safety of the baby. Mm. Um, so dad is allowed to go. Let's say mom pumps out some milk. We need someone to bring the milk. Of course, we would love the us nurses to bring it but we are taking care of other patients as well mm-hmm. so timing of it sometimes it, where we can't we just simply can't like go run down to the NICU and drop it off for them so it's it's great that the the father of the baby can go and also do some bonding with the baby as well I don't know if you have any questions about that or if that pretty pretty much paints a picture no I think you painted a good picture but I was wondering if you could go through what it's like to admit a patient and what's involved in that process? Yes. So when um, the mom comes from labor and delivery, so they transfer them over to our maternity floor. We introduce ourselves, of course, and we check them kind of often in the beginning because they're new to our floor. Mm -hmm. So we would be checking their vital signs, you know, blood pressure, temperature, heart rate, respiratory rate. Um, They are coming on IV fluids. They come pretty quick for the vaginal delivery Mm -hmm. moms. They come to us after an hour of delivery. And the C-section moms come to us two hours after delivery. So it's, it's kind of quick. 
Wow, that's pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. For these moms, some of them will have the epidurals, right? An epidural where they can't feel waist down. It depends on the mom, really. Sometimes they get their feelings back on their legs and some of them halfway there. Some of them one leg they can feel, but the other leg's still sleepy. (laughs) Um, So this is a risk for falls when they need to go to the bathroom. What we would do is when they need to pee, we have to assess them, like see where their legs are at. And they don't want to use that bedpan to pee in the bed because no one feels comfortable peeing in the bed like it's just understandable like they'll feel more comfortable in the bathroom where you where you usually pee at and what types of things would you look for where you would still want them to use the bedpan where you wouldn't feel comfortable it would be if they really can't feel their legs so if they can't feel any part of their legs it's totally sleepy but yet they have that sensation to pee then that's like the perfect time to use a bedpan also checking to see if they feel dizzy oh yeah even just being in the bed because if they get up they are at risk for even fainting while in the bathroom Mm -hmm. there that's like a big risk for these moms too when we take them to the bathroom is we we get scared that they'll faint we never leave them alone especially for the first two times of pee in the bathroom we always have to be in the bathroom with them Mm. for admitting a c-section mom we do put like around their incision site it's called an abdominal binder so it's supporting their incision site Mm. You know, if you get hurt or your stomach hurts and you kind of like hug your stomach, like that type of position, mm-hmm. that's like what it's supposed to do is that it's supporting your incision so that it doesn't feel so loose. Mm. Um, that way, when you move around, it won't hurt as much. Mm. Yeah. So and for the new patients, we encourage them, the C-section moms to use what's called the triflow or incentive spirometer. Incentive spirometer. Um, it's like a breathing exercise device where it helps open up their lungs since they do, remember, they're on bed rest for the first 12 hours. They're not supposed to get out of bed. So we don't want their lungs getting weak. We don't want their lungs to collapse on them. So they'll use that device to practice and checking their bleeding. That's right. So no matter what, C-section moms, vaginal delivery moms, you're bleeding like down in the vaginal area. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like you're getting your monthly again, Basically, that's what I would tell them. And we just want to make sure it's a normal amount of bleeding. And for these admissions, it's still a risk, you know, because they just, you know, they had the baby. We want to make sure that they're not what's called hemorrhaging, where they're bleeding a lot, where it's not like a normal amount. Times like those is when we really do, we start massaging. We feel for the fundus, that top of the uterus, and we massage it to make sure it's firm. Yeah, so that's like hemorrhaging. I was wondering if you had any recommendations for patients as they go through the admission process, something that you wish they knew that could make that whole process go a little bit smoother? Yes. So I kind of wish they would more so breastfeeding, I feel like. I think that's more of something I would like them to even just watch YouTube videos if they want because that breastfeeding part, I feel like a lot of moms are new to it or they're trying again with like their second child because the first time it wasn't so successful is that when they read something and they they kind of have like a little preview of what will be taught to them again in the maternity floor about breastfeeding. And then maybe, I don't know about the bleeding, maybe some of them already know that that will happen because they'll hear from their friends like, oh yeah, you do bleed after and then kind of like your period again, just so they don't freak out about seeing blood. Oh, okay. So just be like a little bit more aware of things that are going to happen and maybe like kind of gather some knowledge. 
Mm-hmm. Just to have that, that way, when they have, when they do come to the maternity floor, they're not as shocked. They're not as like, they aren't prepared, basically. And with the, the new information that we give them, something that will take even more time to sink in. And I was thinking if it will be better for you and for them if they have that little bit of base knowledge so you can kind of perfect it instead of starting from zero, it will take a lot longer and you might not be able to perfect it. Right, right. And like with that being said, is that we'll teach them a lot about breastfeeding. And I know all these moms are trying their absolute best because they do hear that breastfeeding is best. They just don't know what encompasses it, what what goes behind to like breastfeeding, because it's a lot of work, mm-hmm. um, a lot of patience, um, and it takes time. And I think in their heads, they think it's such like a natural thing that a mom should be able to breastfeed her baby, that if there are any bumps, issues that come along the way, that it takes more effort to breastfeed the baby, that they blame themselves. And that's something that we don't want the moms to do because it's not their fault. It's all part of the process. It's a learning process. You know, this is a new baby. It's new to the baby. It's new to mom and that they're both learning together. They're both learning about each other. So that is one thing that that would be great for moms is that mentally when they do read about something ahead of time or see videos, they're a little bit more prepared and they won't blame themselves so much. Mm. So just be more knowledgeable that it's going to take time. There's going to be mistakes and it's not as easy as it looks. <laughs> exactly. You see all these people posting like on social media, like, oh, breastfeeding is the best. I hope you guys are breastfeeding and all that. And, you know, and then if it comes to the point where they're just like, wow, it's not like easy peasy, you know. When I shadowed on the postpartum floor, I found out that it really depends on the mom too. Sometimes it comes really easy for the mom and sometimes it comes harder. And a lot of it has to do with your body, like something you can't control. Exactly. Not all moms are the same. So they shouldn't compare themselves either to their friends, sisters, their own mom. But yeah, that is something that would be great. And it's all part of baby friendly recommendations too and guidelines. Uh, to help them out when they do mm-hmm. when they do finally have that baby. They have a, about nine months to prepare, hopefully. Exactly. <laughs> nine months to prepare and nine months they haven't had their period too. So I understand why seeing the blood is like shocking to them. Mm. There are things that we do monitor on the babies as well. What we use is this little device. It's the transcutaneous bilirubin is what we're checking. Newborns um, have a risk of getting jaundice. Mm. Um, Jaundice is basically that yellowing of the skin. These babies, I know this is getting too technical, I guess, with the words, but basically we don't want a lot of bilirubin running in these babies' bloodstreams because if there's too much, um, it's toxic to the baby's brain. So what we do is we, it's this little device that shines a light on the baby's forehead and then it'll give us a number. So from that number, we use what's called a Billy tool. That's And it lets us know if if it is actually a high risk where it's it's on the high side, then we would actually get some blood work from the baby to see what is actually the number. Because, you know, a light thing, non-invasive, accurate, but sometimes it's not that accurate. So you have to actually get blood, you know, to find out. Mm -hmm. So let's say that the baby does have a high number. The Billy tool says that you need to start what's called phototherapy. And phototherapy is, if you've ever seen um, it in the movies or whatever online, it's like a purple light that shines on top of the baby's UV lights, basically. And it's safe because it's like controlled. Mm. The more the baby is under that light, the better for the baby. It's getting that treatment, decreasing that 
that bilirubin. It helps uh, get rid of it too. And then we go from there to see if it's the numbers lowering. And if it is, and then, then the pediatrician will stop the phototherapy. What also is what we teach our patients at discharge, especially is that natural sunlight that's shining through the window is good for these babies to help decrease the risk of jaundice as well. So indirect light. So you want to have like a barrier in between the sun? It's safer, I believe, because you don't know how harsh that sun is or if it's like too hot. So that's why we would say indirect sunlight. It's like a weaker, but it's still sunlight (laughs) shining through the window. That's what we teach all the parents um, at discharge so that they don't have any issues at home. Of course, if the baby starts to look yellow at home, then we would tell them to let their pediatricians know, and then they would just go from there. They also get a hearing test done while they're there at the hospital. And if these babies don't pass a hearing test, they would just get an appointment to come back. I think they come back after four weeks. The hearing tech would give give them an appointment. Uh, What else gets done is the birth certificate. We do what's called, and this is something that I don't think a lot of people know about, especially if they're going to have their first baby, is it's called a, a California newborn screening. And it does require us to get some blood. And then the blood isn't even collected on a tube. It's actually special paper that has circles on it. And you fill in the circles with the blood. It like absorbs it. This gets sent out. And then if there's any, it screens for like genetic diseases, basically. I guess I think it's been done ever since the 50s, I believe. So it's been around for a while. And then, and if they find anything, they'll call the parents up and let them know. If they don't find anything, then they don't hear back from them at all. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, that one's something new that I feel like I didn't even know until I started working maternity with the breastfeeding. I know I talk a lot about it, but it really is like kind of an important part of the mom and baby is that they don't recommend the use of pacifiers for at least the first month of life. Oh, I didn't know that. They don't recommend it. Yes. Reason why it does interfere with breastfeeding because, okay, so we'll we'll rewind. How do you know that a baby is hungry? Most parents will say the baby cries. And then that's not true because babies start to show early hunger cues um, when they are starting to get hungry. So these early hunger cues are basically if they start lip smacking, you might see them move their hands to their mouth. You might see them move their face, opening their mouth, looking for the breast, basically. Mm. So that would be what's called the perfect time to offer the breast to the baby. Try to feed the baby, basically. For the most part, if babies are totally crying, we've missed those early hunger cues and they're super hungry. So they're so frustrated that they're crying a lot, they can't focus at the breast. Mm. Back to the pacifiers. If they think that the baby just wants to pacify because they're showing those little, you know, hunger cues, they'll put the pacifier on the baby. The baby will suck, suck, suck and go to sleep because... They're thinking I'm getting something and I'm just soothing myself at this point. Then they miss a feeding. That That's the interference of pacifiers is that I think you basically cover up, you mask something. Because I could see someone thinking that those early feeding signs are just the baby wanting the pacifier. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, maybe, maybe my baby just wants to suck on something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a recommendation. Um, it, you know, obviously everybody does, you know, what they want to do as parents, right? Because that's their child. Mm-hmm. They also don't recommend walkers. Mm. This is going away from like nursing for maternity, but it's it's a part of the American pediatric that they don't recommend it because it does interfere with how they learn how to walk. Mm. They learn how to tippy toe instead of walk on their heel first, like heel toe. I have relatives who are occupational therapists and they really say big no to the walkers 
the kids learn how to walk, yes, but I don't know how it like interferes or has something to do with their walking, like how, how they learn how to walk. That's good to know. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. These babies too, like I think a lot of people might think that like babies are okay to sleep on their side than the newborns, but they should always, always be on their back no matter what. Mm -hmm. And this is a recommendation from the Academy of Pediatrics is that if they're laying on their side and everybody's asleep, if all of a sudden this baby moves and goes flat on its face and he can't even lift up, you know, his or her neck, the baby can suffocate while everyone's asleep. Mm. So that's a really important good, you know, thing to know is that they need to be sleeping on their back. So I remember from nursing school that you have to have them sleep on their backs until they're strong enough to lift their heads, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I know the parents, the reason why they put them on their side is because they're afraid some of these babies do spit up. You know, some of them still have amniotic fluid inside them and they're trying to throw it up. They don't want their baby to choke on it. What they're thinking is right. Like they, you know, putting to the baby to the side so that it kind of leaks out on the side of the mouth. What I do tell them that if they really want, they can just turn their baby's head to the side. Mm. Okay, so lay them on their back and have their head to the side and that prevents them from... Would it be okay for them to just lay on their back with their head up? Is there any risk for them choking on that fluid? Usually it's only in the beginning. That's so I feel like the parents would just be watching their babies more. And this is going to sound weird, but what I've noticed is normally when I do walk in and this the babies are spitting up, it's like they do it when I'm there. Okay. That first huge spit up where it seems like they're almost choking. And then I'm there to kind of like help and teach the mom and dad to use that what's called the bulb syringe. It's that, you know, bulb looking thing, that plastic thing. Those green ones that they give out in hospitals apparently are really the best quality. You can't even find it in the stores. So don't tell these parents that are new, like, make sure you don't lose that one. (laughs) (laughs) They would use that syringe to help take out the fluid that's coming out, whatever they're spitting up. And I think something I've seen with the newborns that I've seen in the emergency room is sometimes the caretaker can be scared to like use that syringe, like they don't want to hurt the baby. But I think it's important. It's important to get that fluid out. So don't be scared to like actually like use it and fully use it and not just like, oh, put it in just a tiny little bit, which I understand not wanting to hurt them. But I think it's important to get that fluid out. Right. It's important to Basically save the baby in case the baby really is choking on a lot of fluid. It's for the nose too. I think some parents might think that you have a, you have to have a separate bulb syringe for the nose and the mouth. It, it doesn't matter. And the nose and the mouth isn't technically clean. <laughs> so, oh, what does happen at admission too? Back then, I want to say maybe like five years ago and beyond that is that we would bathe the babies at admission. So like when you get admitted to our maternity floor, we would bathe that baby within that shift that we receive the patient. And we bathe the baby like under, we have these really cool like heaters in every room. What's cool is that there is evidence, evidence-based practice, like um, articles that said that these babies, if you delay their bath at least 12 to 24 hours after life, they actually do a lot better. Mm. They recover from like that stress, you know, when they're getting all wet and they're crying. They recover quick their temperature goes back to that like warm, normal body temperature that they should have versus when you give them a bath right away. Mm. So blood sugars stay stable. Um, Yeah, there's no risk of them staying cold after the bath as well. Like wiping up their face. Maybe there's like milk there or they spit up. They can do that. But the full on bath is what we it's it was a big change for us. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good to know. So can you talk about your biggest pieces of advice upon discharge? I know you've given a lot of advice already and all of it is amazing, but do you have anything that you really want to like point out 
when you are about to let them go home? Yes. So for discharge, you know, I think in the nursing world, discharge uh, teaching is actually taught once you get admitted. It starts at admission. So everything we've been talking about, what we've been showing the parents, it's all going to come back at the discharge instructions. Mm -hmm. It's all there. But instead, it's like all printed out for them. So when we're getting them ready for discharge, we make sure that the baby's hearing test is done, that jaundice check is done one more time. We make sure the most important thing is that the parents have a car seat because it's the law. You need to have a car seat for your baby. What's nice about the hospital that I work at is that we offer gifts to these patients. And let's say a parent, maybe this baby came sooner than they thought and they didn't have a baby shower yet and they don't have a car seat so they need one their gift from us is the car seat oh wow that's awesome let's say they have a car seat so we offer them a stroller or a big bag of diapers (laughs) yeah so it's kind of nice because normally hospitals don't offer a gift when you're getting discharged Mm mm-hmm And then we find out whatever clinic that they went to for their prenatal care. Uh, We want them to go back to that clinic um, for their postpartum checkup. What's one more thing for a discharge? We want to make sure that these babies get done. It's called the um, congenital heart defect screening, which basically checks the baby's um, oxygen level, like the pulse ox level. Usually we have a respiratory therapist that comes and helps us out with that. But if we do it ourselves, it's basically we're checking that oxygen percent I don't know what else to say about discharge. You've said amazing things. Like these are awesome tips. Discharge is pretty quick too, hopefully for the the parents. Um, It's something that's like they're like, oh, yay, we finally get to go home type of thing. I think it's important to write things down as you're getting discharged because you're in such a hurry to leave and be home. I think it's important to write everything down that the nurse says just so you remember it because you might not be focusing right on that in the moment yes like kind of key things that they just want to remind themselves because we give them a pretty thick hack for their discharge paperwork kind of like a book at this point for the babies especially because you add extra education that you feel it would be helpful for the parents to refer back to whenever they want to so don't throw those papers away those papers are so important They really are, yeah, especially for these first-time parents as well. They really are thankful for that. Mm. Um, And for the moms too, uh, when they pump at home, when they start pumping their milk, we always add the breast milk storage times and how long they're good for and uh, the safe way to warm up the milk too. Mm -hmm. So you talked a little bit about that things have changed during COVID. Can you talk about how things have changed and like some of the biggest impacts it has had on your floor? Yeah, I mean, pregnant moms are not like immune to the the virus, the COVID virus, they can get it too. What's interesting is that a lot of these moms, a majority of these moms are asymptomatic. Mm. A lot of these asymptomatic COVID positive moms find out that they're positive in labor and delivery. Mm. Yes. So they don't even know that they had it until, you know, they got tested when they got admitted there. And what's different is that I'll just, you know, kind of do a little quick review of like what happened in the beginning of this pandemic. We separated the mom and the babies. We actually utilized our nursery with babies. And the reason why was because there wasn't any evidence to show that it was okay to have these babies stay with their mom. Mm. So what was really challenging for these moms, and I, I felt bad for them, is that they didn't see their baby. No golden hour. The golden hour 
again, sorry, if that's in labor and delivery is that when your baby comes out and then they, they're, you're okay, you're stable, the baby's stable, they let you do that skin to skin for an hour. And it's called the golden hour for mom and baby. That wasn't done. Mm. So take away that golden hour. Mom hasn't seen the baby. She hears the baby, but she hasn't seen the baby. Maybe got a glimpse of her or him. And then the baby gets sent up to our nursery. And how long can't they see their baby for? Um, I guess they're reunited with their baby when they go home. Oh, wow. It was kind of weird because it's we separated them, yet they're going to be reunited at home anyway. And we deplete that whole bonding throughout the day. So that was something that was different. I mean, because it was new. And the way these moms are able to see their babies, it's like, how how do these moms even see a picture or whatever? It took time um, to figure out what to do without HIPAA, you know, invading privacy. Yeah. <laughs> we got to the point where we were able to utilize an iPad they downloaded FaceTime and I believe it was and we would call them from that iPad or they would call that number because this one was all specific to the hospital. Mm. And we would let them FaceTime or video video chat with the baby. Oh. So that was something that they finally figure out to help out with these moms because, yeah, they were crying. They they felt so bad that they've never saw their baby, like not even in the beginning. And then it, the studies were showing that it was OK as long as a mom you know, wore her mask, did good hand hygiene, um, because the benefits of the mom breastfeeding, the benefits of the mom still having that bond with the baby and for the baby as well, it it outweighed that, you know, separating them just because we were trying to decrease that risk for um, infection. Mm. So right now is what's happening is that these babies are, are inside a isolate. People might think of it as an incubator, but it's an isolate. And as much as possible, we want that baby in the isolate because it decreases that risk of the baby getting infected. With COVID and the moms, they have to practice that. We tell them, wear your mask all the time, hand hygiene whenever you're handling your baby. Oh, and of course, these moms were not allowed visitors. No support person, nothing in the beginning. All COVID positive patients weren't allowed visitors or a support person. Yeah, that would be really um, hard. It was it was challenging for them. So it's like basically I felt like they felt alone because they didn't even have their baby with them either. So it's kind of good how everything is right now. They're allowed to have a support person because of the baby. What changed is that right now our policy is that if the support person wants to be there for that, they have to stay there in that room until discharge. So they're not allowed to leave. But if they had to leave, they're not allowed to come back until they're picking hmm. These support persons, we tell them, we teach them, we say, you still have to wear your mask, you have to wear your gown, you need to try to be six feet away, (laughs) kind of like what everybody knows right now, basically. And I think it's been good because they actually have their baby there with them. Obviously, the nurses that take care of them, we wear our PPE. Um, It's been an interesting year. Policies change. It's such a changing environment. One week it's this, another week there's something else because I guess they do more studies and they're finding out new things. But at least at this point, I feel like for the patients, it's good how our policy is right now. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Can you kind of talk about how COVID has affected you and simply the fact of having to put on PPE every time you go in and out of a room adds a lot of time when your time is already kind of restricted. So I was wondering if you could kind of talk to us about your experience and how it's changed your nursing practice. Yeah. So in the beginning, when this pandemic all started, I we were terrified. I was so scared. And I don't know if I, I don't even know when it started where they wanted everybody to wear a mask. Um, in the beginning, actually, I don't think we were allowed to wear a mask. 
even though we were hearing about the virus, I just felt so helpless, you know, at that point, because it's like we weren't even testing the moms yet. Um, and then as it evolved, they started testing moms who showed symptoms, then that kind of helped out. But then it got to the point where they were testing all the moms regardless, just so they can separate them on our floor versus uh, away from the patients who were COVID negative. Mm. On my part, it's I f- it's tiring when you have more than one COVID positive mom. Mm-hmm. I feel bad that I can't just easily walk in there when they need something, when they need help. It takes time. You have to put your PPE on properly. It's not something that you just kind of like, oh, let me just put it on really quick and then go in. There's a process to it, a safe process so that you don't touch yourself. You don't, you know, germs. It doesn't matter even if it if it's not COVID. It's like you're supposed to do it the right way to prevent from getting infected. Mm-hmm. What's called donning is that you put everything on properly you double check everything's on correctly. We do wear N95s um, to protect us instead of just the surgical mask. So what we have on, I'll just kind of like label it. it. We have the N95 on, we have that face shield. We used to have goggles, but then they said that face shield's a lot more protective because it covers your whole face. Mm. We have the, it's like the surgical cap, the disposable one. We have the surgical, um, the shoe covers. We'll use that too. And then of course, we'll have the gowns. So we have that whole thing on us. It's pretty, <laughs> it gets pretty warm in there too. Mm-hmm. Moving around and helping. And sometimes when you talk a lot, educating these moms, you can start to get sweaty and it's uncomfortable. And when you're doffing, doffing is basically when you're taking off your PPE. I feel like that is the most crucial part because you were just, in there you don't know if anything is on you so the way you take off your ppe is so important at that point you need to take it off following the steps the guidelines you know sanitizing in between before you touch your face especially mm-hmm. and it's like <laughs> even though it's something that i feel like i've gotten used to because we are having a little bit more numbers of positive moms on our floor that we're taking care of I still feel like I need to look at the paper and follow the directions, like follow that the steps, because I'm so scared that if I break it, I break one of the steps that if it's on me, somehow I'll get infected. Mm-hmm. And we take turns taking care of these moms, by the way. we It's not something that we volunteer. It's that we have a list and whoever's turn it is, it's their turn to take care of the, the positive moms if we have them. Mm. Yeah, I think mentally... And physically, it's more tiring during this time. It's really hard, especially, I think I mentioned it, but I forgot to follow up with it, is that when you have more than one couplet care of a COVID positive, let's say you have three, it takes a lot of time for you to go from one room to the next room Mm -hmm. because you're donning and doffing. It's a long process. And going back to what I said is that I feel bad as a nurse. Like I feel like I'm taking forever to get in, but it's not even because I'm doing it on purpose. Mm -hmm. I want to be there for my patients like right away. It's not as scary, which is a good thing, but it's still scary. I don't know how to say it. (laughs) It's like we're like I'm like I said, we're 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 getting used to having these patients here and using our PPE. And I'm thankful that we have PPE. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess that's the number one thing that I'm so happy about is that I'm still hearing stories from other nurses that I graduated with that they're using that same N95 for a week. And they store it in that paper bag, just like in the beginning of the pandemic, right? Yeah, I was doing so, that. Yeah, exactly. So I'm glad. I think that's why it put me more at ease is that we actually have the supplies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, going day by day. That's crazy. And you had personal things going on too, right? Didn't you have to postpone your wedding? I did. 
I had a big wedding plan for September. And I mean, I could have done a Zoom wedding or whatnot to keep it. But I felt like my wedding, it really was something that I wanted to share with my whole family. Like, mm-hmm. my, we have a huge family, my fiance's side. And, you know, I didn't want to put everyone at risk and just say, hey, you feel like coming? Come. Like, it's okay. But I know that they were thankful that I postponed it because they wanted to be there as well. So on top of all this nursing career stress, you have your own personal life stress is happening. And I I feel for you. I'm thankful for you. And we're all so thankful for you. Thank you. Yeah. It's something you just, yeah, you got to just pull through. And the thing about nursing is that you're flexible. Adaptable. Adaptable. There you go. We just adapt to the changing times and just kind of hope for the best. So hopefully next year, 2021, hopefully things are different. And because I did postpone my wedding to September next year, does still buy some time. Mm. see how things go from there as well. Now, I know we've kind of talked about the experience of having COVID and having a baby. I don't want to scare people. So I was wondering if you could kind of talk to those moms who are pregnant now and who are about to give birth, if you could, if you have any pieces of advice for them, anything they can do to prepare or make the process go smoother. I don't know. I know that's kind of a big question, but. (laughs) Well, number one thing that I already addressed is um, breastfeeding. If you're informed, you kind of educate yourself, kind of have that like pre little exposure to breastfeeding. It'll help you out. It'll help put your mind at ease that way when we start talking to you about it again again, that it's not so shocking that it's just kind of like a reinforcement, just kind of like re-education at that point. Know that things aren't perfect. I know we moms will picture like a perfect delivery and all that and the after the postpartum care. Just know that whatever happens, you'll be okay. That's like the thing that I want them mentally prepared for and that you're going to have a lack of sleep. So be prepared for that too. It's not Something where the baby's going to sleep whenever you're asleep. For the most part, I've noticed that a majority of them play at night. They like to be awake at night. <laughs> totally opposite from us unless you're a night person. But yeah, those those little things. And if the hospital's allowing you to have a support person, take one. Whether it be your mom or your sister or a cousin, whoever it is that's going to be available for you for this day, it's helpful. It really is. Um, you won't feel so alone. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can see what might happen, you know, for delivery or after delivery, or if you want to research like epidurals, if you want it or not, can. But I feel like the more things that, that's in control is mostly for the breastfeeding. And if you want to read any baby little baby books about like changing the diaper, how to bathe the baby, that's okay too. Why not? Mm-hmm. When the baby is actually out, it's a different thing because it's hands-on at this point. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Once a baby is out. Yeah. So I feel like those are the things that for sure will help out the parents. Um, and I feel like maybe relieving stress in some of those areas that you're talking about will help with feeling stressed about COVID or feeling stressed about being in the hospital in general during this time. Just having some peace throughout these other processes might help you handle what else is going on. Right, exactly. Like focusing more about you and the baby, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, When you do that, it kind of gives more of like, it's a positive light. And it's such a happy time. Like that's one thing that I love about maternity is that you see that bond, you see that smile, you see the mom and dad or whoever is just like every little thing that the baby does, they love it. (laughs) So yeah, think positive about it. Whatever is happening out there, like you're going to have a baby and it's going to be an experience that you'll remember regardless if there's bumps or whatever happens um, in postpartum. In the end, it's like you get to take home something beautiful. Mm. Quarantine with that baby. (laughs) (laughs) That's the beauty of it. (laughs) 
I yeah. guess to end, maybe we could talk about any patient interactions that you feel like have really stuck out to you. Um, maybe some that you really remember. And yeah. Yeah. So my favorite thing is helping the moms through this process of whole after delivery and the nurses there kind of like on by their side through everything. I don't know, like holding the babies. I love holding these little babies and then handing them back to the parents, helping them <laughs> swaddle the baby so that they look like little burritos. It's like I feel like the little things that shows that I care about your recovery I care about educating you guys if you have any questions. Care about that we're doing the absolute best we can during their stay in the hospital. I think that's something maybe important for patients to keep in mind. You guys are always doing your best. And even though you might not be in the room right away, especially nowadays, like with the donning and doffing, um, you're doing your best. And I think it's really important for that to be communicated, even though sometimes it might not feel like you're always right there as soon as they need. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the fact that we do take care of more than one, like, unfortunately, like, I wish that it would be like our ratio. You do hear nurses talk about ratios all the time. But if the ratio was like the perfect ratio, then we would be able to spend a lot of time and it wouldn't seem like we would be jumping patient to patient like we try hard. We try our best not to show it too. Like mm -hmm. I try to show that I have all the time in the world when I'm in one patient room. <laughs> and then when I go, but deep down, like in my mind, I'm like, dude, I have all these things that like I need to make sure that, you know, is done for my patient, patients, for all of them. And you have double of them because you yeah. have the baby and the mama. Yeah. Just so that they know that we try our best to come as quickly because I know for one person you're in there and you're like asking for something. It may feel like 10 minutes, even though it's just like two minutes, you know, to them when you're trying to go from one patient, finish up there and then go to the next. And you're the only nurse. You're like, you're their nurse. So yeah, I just want them to remember that is that, you know, no matter what, we try to give the best care ever for them. That way, when they leave, they're happy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that you gave us some really, really amazing advice and I some things that I didn't even know. I mean, I don't work on a maternity floor, but yeah, thank you so much for being willing to share all of that with us. And I really, really appreciate you being willing to come on and share your story. <laughs> thank you. It was my pleasure. I love talking about maternity. So hopefully this, what I told everybody, what I shared is like helpful and kind of paints a picture too for people who aren't familiar with the maternal child um, world. I mean, I haven't even had a baby yet, but I feel like it's going to help me in the future even. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Perfect. Good. That's good to hear. <laughs> That was an amazing conversation. It was really informative, and I really appreciated Christine opening up and sharing her thoughts with us. One of my favorite parts was when she talked about the honesty of what postpartum nurses face and how things can be miscommunicated or misunderstood. I also loved all the little tips she gave. I mean, I feel like it's definitely going to help me when I have a baby in the future. I think some of the tips she gave can help make your stay go a lot smoother in the postpartum world, even just doing some little things like researching breastfeeding or something before you go to the hospital. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends if you think they might be interested and follow us on social media at The Banana Bag Podcast or visit our website for more information, including ways to support us, thebananabagpodcast.com. See you next time.